Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be uh, Psalm 139, and it can be found on pages 7 through 9 in your bulletins. Before we begin, please join me in a prayer for illumination. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and, and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Seoul, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night, Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end. I am still with you. O that you would kill the wicked, O God and that the bloodthirsty would depart from me. Those that speak of you maliciously and lift themselves up against you for evil, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for that great reading of the entire psalm. I know it was a bit long, and yet... It's God's word, and so we needed to hear it in its entirety. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, uh, a few weeks ago I came back from a scientific conference. Um, I am a biologist. I was able to spend a day in Geneva, Switzerland. A highlight of that visit was the Cathedrale de Saint-Pierre, the the church where uh, during the Swiss Reformation, John Calvin did his preaching and teaching. The chaise du Calvin, the, uh, Calvin's chair is there for you to see in, in the sanctuary. 
And that's a part of our history. I mean, after all, this is Geneva Campus Church. And I've always appreciated the Christian Reformed Church's emphasis on doctrine, its traditions. Knowing what we believe is definitely important. And this is especially true about God. Uh, A.W. Tozer, a 20th century pastor, famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, Tozer, as a pastor, understood that reciting something about God isn't the same as our practical beliefs about God. And surveys show this. One from the Ligonier Institute asked Christian respondents to agree or disagree with this statement. God is unconcerned with my day-to-day decisions. That's the statement. Think about how you would respond to that. Well, in 2018, 36% of participants aged 18 to 34 agree with this statement, up from 30% in 2016 and 21% in 2014. Young adults have a growing disconnect with what they say they believe about God's essential attributes, on the one hand, and their everyday experience, on the other. And I frankly don't think this problem is unique to that age demographic. We need to translate our theology, what we say we believe, into practice. And the Psalms help us to do that. Well, how do they do that? Old Testament scholar Bernhard Anderson said, most of the Bible speaks to us. The Psalms speak for us. They train us to pray. And we need that training. Pastor Eugene Peterson says it this way, left to ourselves, we'll pray to some God who speaks what we like hearing or to the part of God we manage to understand. What's critical is that we speak to the God who speaks to us and to everything that he speaks to us. What's essential in prayer is not that we learn to express ourselves, but that we learn to answer God. The Psalms help us to do this, and they do it in an edgy way with authenticity, an authenticity that we need. Uh, The great reformer Martin Luther said this, Uh, in his introduction to the Psalter from 1545. Whoever begins to pray the Psalms earnestly and regularly will soon take leave of light and personal little devotional prayers and say, ah, there is not the juice, the strength, the passion, the fire which you find in the Psalms. Well, today's passage, Psalm 139, certainly brings the juice. And so uh, let's look at it together. You can divide this psalm up into two parts. In verses 1 to 18, the psalmist prays about God's presence. What does it mean for God to be present with him in the way that only God can? The second part, verses 19 to 24, then drives the psalmist to pray for God's justice. Now, I think the psalmist is not primarily interested in God's omni-this or God's omni-that, uh, this is deeply personal stuff, and I think you can see that. Um, you can see that by the way that he alternates between uh, the U U U of the first part, the first six verses, and the I I I of the, the next section in this psalm. 
Now, as we look at this very personal reflection on who God is that the psalmist makes, we can divide it into three main sections. Section number one, there's no thing about God, there's no thing about us that God doesn't know. That's verses one to six. There's no thing about us God doesn't know. Second, there's no place we can go that God can't reach. That's verses seven to 12. And then finally, there's no time in our lives when God hasn't been there. That's verses 13 to 18. So let's unpack each of these sections of the psalmist's prayer. First, there's no thing about us God doesn't know. Know is a crucial word in this psalm. The the Hebrew verb yada um, is, is all over the psalm. It occurs seven times, twice at the end in verse 23. What kind of knowledge are we talking about here? Well, the verb itself often carries the idea of intimate knowledge. God knows far more than the facts on our LinkedIn resumes or anything else about us. Second, not only is it intimate, but it's detailed knowledge. We get that from the search words in this psalm. In verse 1, the word for search is used for detailed legal proceedings elsewhere in the Old Testament. In verse 3, the word search out literally means to winnow, to separate wheat from chaff. I take this to mean that God knows not just what we do, but why we do it. He knows our motives. Indeed, the psalmist says he knows our every thought. In other words, God's knowledge extends to everything about us. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but I I find this idea really hard to wrap my head around, and I think if you find that same thing to be true, you're probably thinking properly about God, at least to a little, uh, to some extent. And uh, John Calvin, who we mentioned earlier, pointed this out in his commentary on this section of Psalm 139. You know, our, our tendency is usually to think about God in the same way we think about ourselves, But at the very least, it's crucial for us to recognize that God's thoughts are indescribably greater than ours. Now, we may not know entirely what that means, but I think there are some lessons for our lives here. What are those? Well, first, there's nothing we can hide from God. Nothing we can hide. Now, I just said that anthropomorphizing, treating God like he's a human, can be dangerous. But but maybe a human analogy will help here. I'm the chair of the Department of Integrative Biology at UW-Madison, and a couple of years ago we we hired a new departmental administrator named Julie. And last year, Julie asked me if I would share my electronic calendar with her. Maybe you've done that for somebody in, in your life. Well, I have to say that knowing that whatever I have in there is is visible to other people uh, makes me think a lot harder about what I put in there and how I put it in there. And God's knowledge of us, of course, is um, more like having a Google calendar that's, that's uh, broken down by nanoseconds. He knows everything about us. And, you know, I think that that should make us rethink what we read, what we listen to, what we watch, how we act, how we think. A second lesson for our lives here from this first section of this psalm is that if I'm honest, uh, that sort of absolute knowledge can be unnerving. At least it is for me. 
But curiously, we don't get the sense that the psalmist is particularly unnerved by this. He's not living in perpetual dread of God's knowledge. Well, why is that? Well, I think it's because the psalmist is addressing God in personal relationship. You see, God is much more interested in conversation than he is in mind reading. Yes, he knows your thoughts, but he's much more interested in interacting with you. See, in conversation, I willingly own God's deep knowledge of me in the context of loving relationship, and that's what the psalmist is doing. And that means I can drop the facade with God that I personally spend way too much time grooming and cultivating so that I can be truly authentic. I think the closest we can get as mere humans to this sort of knowledge is with people whom we've known and loved for a very long time. For me, that's my wife, Susie. We've been married for 36 years. We celebrated that anniversary earlier this month. She knows me far better than anyone. She often knows what I'm thinking without me having to tell her. Maybe you've had that experience with someone you know and love. But in keeping with the theme of schedules that I mentioned earlier, I still have a major growth area. That's in talking to my loving wife about the things I add to my schedule. I see some other people might have the same debilitating situation in their own lives. That's good. Um, You know, um, she could look at my, my calendar just like Julie does. But what she longs for is to talk to me to pray with me over what I agree to do. That's relationship. And that's what God longs for for us in relationship with him. It's a sort of invitation that he extends to us as well. Well, are you longing for someone who gets you, who wants what is truly best for you at all times? Well, then pour your thoughts, your deepest longings, those deepest in your heart, out to God. He already knows you better than you will ever know yourself. Opening yourself to that kind of love is going to transform you. Well, in the next section of the first part of the psalm, the psalmist goes on to say that there's no place we can go that God can't reach us. That's verses 7 to 12. Now, uh, one reaction to verses 1 through 6 might be given that God knows everything about you, is an urge to escape. And I think the psalmist anticipates that in this next section. So he asks, well, let's do a thought experiment. Where could we go and God wouldn't be there? And the answer, of course, is nowhere. There's nowhere we can go that God isn't already there. And the psalmist uses merisms. Um, This is a Hebrew technique of listing two extremes and then implying that everything in between those extremes is um, also in view. And he does that in in a couple of ways. In verse 8, he uses two vertical extremes. If I go to the highest heaven, or I go to the depths of Sheol, the netherworld where dead people are thought to be under the earth, God's there in both of those places and everywhere in between. And then in verse 9, it's a horizontal merism. He starts with the east and says, well, the sun rises in the east. That's the furthest place in the east. And then if I look to the west, the Mediterranean Sea is the furthest place I can look to in the west. And God is everywhere in between. 
Then in verses 11 and 12, of course, he says something astonishing, and we'll sing about that a little later, that even the darkness is light to God. He has access to everything in every place. Wow. Well, what are some lessons for our lives about this section of the psalm? First, I think one important lesson for our lives is that we can stop running from God. We can stop running. Why is that? He's going to be every place where we try to run. Now, the mid-20th century theologian Paul Tillich, in a sermon on Psalm 139, um, which goes by the cheery title, No Escape, that's the title of his sermon, um, he said it this way, our technical civilization attempts just that, to run, in order to be liberated from the knowledge that it lacks a center of life and meaning. The modern way to flee from God is to rush ahead, to conquer more and more space in every direction, in every, human, in every humanly possible way. See, Tillich is on to something. We're surrounded by a culture that is seeking escape day after day, whether through frenetic work or social media or entertainment. Psalm 139 says that this hamster wheel of perpetual motion is inevitably going to fail. The liberating message of Psalm 139 is that we can stop running. We can get off that wheel. God invites us to rest in his transforming, refreshing, and altering presence day by day. Well, I think a second lesson for our lives from this section of the psalm is that our deepest places are accessible to God. In our household, that's Geneva Speak for uh, small group Bible studies. Um, I often tease Mark Yang. Um, He recently got his PhD in physics at UW-Madison. Now, I, I don't know how much physics John Calvin knew, but he did say this about this passage. Though one should fly with the speed of light... He could find no recess where he would be beyond the reach of divine power. There's nowhere we can go, even at high speed, and escape God's presence. And that includes all of the nooks and crannies of our lives. Favorite little booklet of mine, maybe you've read it, maybe you've heard of it, is called My Heart, Christ's Home uh, by Robert Boyd Munger. It's based on the idea, kind of an allegory, that when we come to Christ, we open the door of our lives to Jesus. And so the booklet uh, takes the main character room by room as Jesus cleans out the interior house of his life. But then Jesus comes to a small closet and says, "Hmm, there's a peculiar odor in the house. There's something dead around here. I I think it's in the hall closet. Well, the main character responds, yes, there was a small closet up there on the landing. I had one or two little personal things that I didn't want anyone to know about, especially Jesus. Now, I knew they were dead and rotting things, and yet I loved them. I was angry. I'd I'd given Jesus access to the library, the dining room, the living room, the workroom, the playroom. And now he was asking me about that little two-by-four closet. 
Well, eventually the main character relented and hands the key over to Jesus to clean out that smelly closet. And here's what he said. He walked over to the door, opened it, entered it, took out all the putrefying stuff that was rotting there and threw it away. Oh, what victory and release to have that dead thing out of my life. But what smelly things are lurking in the closets of our hearts? We need to ask God. He already knows about them. And ask him to help us do serious spiritual house cleaning through his Holy Spirit. Well, the third part of the first section of Psalm 139, verses 13 to 18, the the psalmist turns to a final point, and that's this. There's no time in his life that God hasn't been present. In fact, his entire life was in God's mind before it even began. The psalmist says that God was there when he was an embryo, when his inward parts were formed. Now, uh, Emma Wong Uh, who happens to be somewhat connected to Mark Yang, um, is a pediatric nephrologist. Emma, you'll you'll appreciate that this literally says kidneys here, but we translate it as inmost parts. In in verse 16, the embryo is called a a golem, an unformed shape. I think J.R.R. Tolkien might have known a little bit of Hebrew because one of his main deformed characters in the Ring trilogy goes by that same name. See, when we were only beginning to take shape, God was there overseeing the details. And we get that from some of the other language here. In verse 15, uh, the verb intricately woven, radam, is used in Exodus to describe the way the craftsmen wove colored threads together for uh, the curtain for the tabernacle. God has been there throughout the psalmist's entire life even before he was born. Now, I teach an undergraduate course here at UW-Madison in embryonic development, developmental biology, called uh, Zoology 470. Many years ago, our own Genevan elder, Tricia Smith, took that course, survived it very well, I might add. And on the first day of class, uh, every year that I've taught it, I I start by quoting Psalm 139. I tell my students that whether they share the psalmist worldview, and as a Christian I happen to, or not, I want them to think embryonic development is cool. And if I can achieve that goal, then I have won throughout the course of the semester. And embryonic development definitely is cool. I mean, we live in a very privileged time where we're unlocking the secrets of embryonic development. Think of this. We all start as a single fertilized egg, a zygote. And by the time we're born, we have 15 trillion cells. My colleague Bill Hurlbut, a bioethicist at Stanford University, has said that fertilization initiates the most complex chemical reaction in the known universe. Now, perhaps he's right about that. Fertilization produces an organism capable of self-directed self-assembly of staggering complexity. Uh, The incredibly intricate cellular choreography called morphogenesis by which form arises in a developing embryo is what I've spent my entire career investigating. Now, what should these new exciting insights into embryonic development generate in us? Well, um, 
Let me turn back to Jean Calvin for a moment, because in this section of the psalm, he says it this way, the true and proper view to take of the works of God is that which ends in wonder. Development is amazing, and as Christians, we should celebrate it and praise our great creator for its intricacy. Now, most of you are not developmental biologists, so what are some lessons for our lives from this section of the psalm? Well, first, I'd like to argue that God has been there through every moment of our lives. If you're tempted to believe that no one has been there or values you, Psalm 139 ought to be like a refreshing splash of cool water in your face. God has been there during every great moment and every crushing disappointment. And God has valued you since before you were born. Second, God values each of our lives from beginning to end. Now, we need to be honest and say that the the, uh, scriptural human authors didn't know anything about the earliest stages of embryonic development. But nevertheless, I think we can say uh, several things from a biblical perspective. First is that Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, tell us that, that humans are set apart because they are image bearers. They bear the image of God. Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5, tell us that children are a gift from the Lord. They're not products. They are begotten gifts. And the passage we're considering this morning, Psalm 139, shows us that God's care for each of us has extended to the very earliest moments of our lives, from the very beginning. I think these passages call us to a consistent culture of life that respects humans from their earliest moments to their final days. A contemporary testimony of the Christian Reformed Church, Our World Belongs to God, says it this way. Grateful for advances in science and technology, we participate in their development, fostering care for creation and respect for the gift of life. That's in section 50. There's one other thing we can say here. We're Christians, of course, and uh, Christians can add that our Lord himself dignified the processes of embryonic development by taking them up into the divine life. Such thoughts truly are beyond us. All right, well, let's review what the psalmist has said so far. First, there's no thing about us that God doesn't know. Second, there's no place we can go that God can't reach. And third, there's no time in our lives that God hasn't been there. The rest of the psalm, verses 19 to 24, are the psalmist's response to these ideas. But this is where we see the fire that Martin Luther was talking about, don't we? What should we make of verses 19 to 22, especially, with phrases like, I hate those who hate you? After all, we don't want to be about hate, do we? Well, let's think about these in context a bit. First, in verse 19, the psalmist describes his enemies as wicked, and literally, men of blood, a phrase that appears repeatedly in the first two sections of the book of Psalms and always refers to violent people, including murderers. So one point we can make here is that these are not nice people that the psalmist is talking about. 
Secondly, verses 21 and 22, Psalm 139, is a declaration of loyalty. And it's similar to ones that were made at about the time uh, that this psalm was written. Uh, Vassals would often swear oaths to ancient Near Eastern kings, sort of like this. With my friend, you shall beef a friend. And with my enemy, you shall be an enemy. So this kind of oath of loyalty means what the psalmist is talking about isn't personal. It's about the God of justice enacting justice. And third, as Christians, we have a deeper picture about what's going on here in terms of God's ultimate solution for injustice. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer 20th century theologian said it this way, the prayer for the vengeance of God is the prayer for the execution of his righteousness in the judgment of sin. God's vengeance did not strike the sinners, but the one sinless man who stood in the sinner's place, namely God's own son. Jesus Christ himself requests the execution of the wrath of God on his body. And thus he leads me back daily to the gravity and the grace of his cross for me and all enemies of God. And that's the psalmist's final destination, gravity and grace. He doesn't confine his attack to the evil around him. He's so consonant with God's heart that he feels that injustice and wants that injustice to be dealt with but he trains the spotlight on his own life. We saw in verse 1 that God searched him and God knew him. Now in verse 23, he invites God to search him. He invites God to know him. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's make that our prayer. If we can, we'll be on the road to becoming the people he wants us to be. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together.